Let's generate our motivation. So sometimes we may uh, feel confused and kind of say to ourselves, what in the world is going on in my life? Well, the answer to that is the 12 links of dependent origination. That's what's going on in our lives. So instead of getting tumbled up with whatever you think is happening in your life, just realize that 12 links are talking about the state of samsara, and that's what our life is all about. If we contemplate the 12 links, we understand how we got here. If we contemplate the 12 links, we can get some idea of possible rebirths we may take in the future. If we contemplate the 12 links, we understand the experience of every single living being and can generate compassion for them. So even though the 12 links sometimes may be challenging to understand, the more we can contemplate them and see the different facets and aspects of them and how they are interwoven, the more we will understand what our lives and the lives of others are about. And the more we will have a strong intention to be free of samsara and have strong compassion and bodhicitta so that we can help others be free from samsara. So that's the reason why we're sharing the Dharma this evening. We may never have thought before that the answer to the question of what in the world is happening in my life would be the 12 links. No? But it is. And right now we're on the link of feeling, and that is especially about what is going on in our lives. But first, before we get into feeling, is last week there was incredible discussion about um, the immediately preceding cause for different cognitions and uh, the object, um, what do you call it, objective, object condition for the cognitions. And so um, there's some answers And since you wanted to know, I'm going to tell you. 
Um, okay, so the, the answers are from the Satantrika school, their point of view. Uh, so some things may not be the same as the Prasangika viewpoint, but uh, probably a lot of things are quite similar. When I come to the things that, that I know don't agree, I'll point them out. But you may know of others. Anyway, okay. So the object, observed object condition, because remember there were three, the observed object condition, the object, you know, for sense consciousness is what you're perceiving, the uh, dominant condition, which is sense faculty, and then the immediate preceding condition. And so this is talking about things that make any kind of condition, uh, cognition happen. Okay, so this is not talking in how this relates to the developmental model of the 12 links is that after you have the six uh, sources, you know, those sense faculties are perceiving objects, then you're going to have a contact and that will produce feeling. And so that's where this is coming in. Okay. So... Observed object condition of a sense direct perceiver, perceiver, okay, uh, apprehending form, okay, that which principally and directly produces a sense direct perceiver apprehending form as having the aspect of that form. So the aspect, remember, was the image that's in the mind, uh, that is what you see. So according to Satantrika, it's um, the observed optic condition for a sense cognition is a form um, because it's a sense direct perceiver apprehending form that is produced through the force of a form casting its aspect to it. That is the form appearing to it. Yeah, so you're upside down thing and your retina and so on. A form is also the observed object condition for a mental direct perceiver apprehending form produced after a sense direct perceiver apprehending form. Okay, so after you see uh, something like with your eye consciousness, you may also, they say, the Satantrika state, that you have an instant of a mental direct perceiver of that object. And then probably after that, for ordinary beings, you go into conceptual thought, thinking about it. Okay, but that um, that object that you saw with your senses are, is uh, also the observed object condition for that instance of, of mental direct perceiver. Okay, so to be an actual observed object condition, it must, one, appear to the mind, and two, that mind must be produced in dependence on it. Okay, so now there's, so it sounds, okay, well, yeah, for sense consciousnesses, yeah, that's that's not too difficult to understand. But there's some other consciousnesses. You know, what about a yogic direct perceiver that is perceiving selflessness? Okay, now here, this, the way the Satantrikas talk about 
perceiving selflessness is different than the way the prasangikas do. For the sautantrikas, um, you perceive what is directly appearing and what you directly perceive mentally is the aggregates. And you implicitly or indirectly know that there is no self-sufficient, substantially existent self in those aggregates. But the main thing that's appearing to your mind is not selflessness, it's the aggregates. And you implicitly know there's no self in the aggregates. For the... um, Okay, so let me just read how how they talk about the observed object condition, and then I'll talk about the prasangikas. Okay, so for the sautantrikas, because they explain the perception of selflessness like that, okay, there's no objective, uh, observed objective condition, because according to the sautantrikas, selflessness does not appear to the mind because selflessness is a non-affirming negation and is permanent, and only impermanent things are appearing objects of direct perceivers. Okay. So that kind of goes along with our ordinary view. You know, this is why kind of things that go along with our ordinary mind are, are usually you've found more in, in the lower tenant system. So this is one of them. A yogic direct perceiver realizing selflessness is produced depending on the meditative stabilization of serenity and special insight, but that does not appear to it. Okay, so they say that for the yogic direct perceiver apprehending selflessness, there is no observed uh, object condition. Yeah, because you're not perceiving selflessness. Yeah, you're perceiving the aggregates. Okay. And it's produced dependent on the union of uh, serenity and insight. Okay. Now, from the Prasangika viewpoint, and this is something really different from uh, the other schools, is you can directly, with um, your mental consciousness, know selflessness. Yeah. So first of all, with the prasangikas, how they define selflessness is different. The sotantrikas, it's the absence of a self-sufficient, substantially existent self. For the prasangikas, it's the absence of an inherently existent self. Okay, so that's different. Then the prasangikas say that you can perceive a non-affirming negation directly. You can perceive something that is permanent directly with your mental consciousness. Okay, so that is pretty unusual. Most of the other schools, um, you know, wouldn't say that. And, you know, even if you're talking about, let's say, another permanent phenomena like empty space, they usually, like the cheetah madrans for them, empty space is simply an imputed object. So for them, you can't directly perceive imputed objects. Whereas for prasangikas, everything is imputed, and you can, you know, perceive them when you develop your mind to to have that capacity. Okay, regarding a yogic direct perceiver realizing impermanence, 
There's also no ob- observed object uh, condition because the object impermanence does not cast its aspect to that cognizer. Okay, what kind of phenomena is impermanent? Yeah, or impermanence. Yeah? It's an abstract composite. Is impermanence permanent or impermanent? It's impermanent. Okay, and it's an impermanent abstract composite. Okay, so it does not cast its aspect to the yogic direct perceiver that perceives impermanence. Why? Because it's produced through the force of meditation and impermanence is the observed object, but not the observed object condition. Okay, yeah. So you're observing impermanence, but it's not the observed optic condition. When you perceive impermanence, okay, you know impermanence by seeing other things that are changing. Yeah. So through this you can have, the prasangikas say you can directly perceive impermanence. But again, impermanence isn't some kind of thing that's out there. You know it through seeing other things change. Like time, you know, time is also an abstract composite. We can perceive time, but we only know time because we can see the change in other things. Okay. And the self, the I, is also an abstract composite because we only know it through knowing the body, speech, and mind of a sentient being and then imputing that there's a person. Now, the Satandrikas also talk about this thing called rangrig or apperception or self-knower. Okay. So this is, uh, not all the schools assert a, a self-knower, uh, apperception. Okay, so uh, it too, there, there's no observed object condition when there's a self-knower perceiving something because the appearance of a likeness of the object um be, you know, to be an observed object condition, you have to have the appearance of a, of the aspect or likeness of the object to the mind. And a self-knower, for the self-knower, there's no likeness of an object because it's a cognition, it's a knower for which there is no dualistic appearance. Okay? So what self, what, what apperception does is you um, have your, Let's say you have a visual consciousness apprehending the white of the page, okay? Then that's your visual consciousness. Then the Sautantrikas say, and the Prasangikas refute, <laughs> the Sautantrikas say that non-dual with that visual consciousness is another consciousness. So it's another consciousness, but it's not dual with the, that visual consciousness. And while the visual consciousness knows the white, 
the apperception knows that the, the mind that is seeing white. And so they say that enables you, when you remember something later, you don't just remember the object, you remember also seeing the object. So Satantrika say you need that apperception in order to remember seeing the object. Okay. Prasangika say to them, yeah, 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 that, that, that's, mm, no. It doesn't exist. Okay. Why doesn't it exist? Because if you need the apperception to validate uh, your, your visual consciousness, then you're going to need another apperception to validate this one that saw the visual consciousness. And you'll need another apperception that is non-dual that validates this one, that validates this one. that, And you get into... Um, uh, what do you call it? What? Uh, yeah, infinite regression. And that's a no-no. Okay. So the prasangika say you can't have a perception. Yeah. They go into long, big things about it. And there's this example that, that, that I think Chandra Kir, no, who gives it? No, Kedrup J maybe gives it. Yeah, that's right. It was Shanti Deva who gives this example, and even um, Chandrakirti. No, Chandra, Shanti Deva came after Chandrakirti. Sankapa, somebody else, very prominent, said that example is difficult to understand. <laughs> so I'm not even going to try to explain it. <laughs> Okay, then this one's interesting, conceptual conceptual mental consciousness. So the Satantrikas also say for this one, there's no observed ob object condition because what appears to it is a conceptual appearance which is permanent. Okay, and, uh, and so remember, for them, you can't directly perceive permanent things. Okay, uh, so conception is produced not by the force of an external object, but of the cognizer which induces it. For example, a previous sense direct perceiver that, uh, you know, if I'm going to think about the pink of the, of the, the, uh, thermos, you know, my precious thermos, um, that doesn't belong to me, but, um, if I want to think of, of that, the visual consciousness is the one that is the sense faculty to the mental consciousness, okay? And so uh, and that's what produces, and the mental consciousness sees the pink, not directly, but through the media of this conceptual appearance. So the prasangikas agree that that conceptual appearances are permanent. But I don't necessarily buy into that. And I was very um, glad to hear Jeffrey said he had some doubts about that too. Yeah. So uh, anyway, it's put it on your list of what you're going to know when you become a Buddha that you're going to tell the rest of us. Okay. <laughs> 
Okay, so then Chita Madra. Okay, remember the Chita Madrans? Yeah, who say that, uh, you know, the black of the uh, microphone and my visual consciousness that apprehend that color come from the same substantial cause, which is a seed on the mind stream, or actually a seed on the foundation consciousness. Yeah. So Chita Madras, they go out way. I mean, from, from, you start with Vibhasaka, then yes, Satantrika goes, you know, it kind of follows. Even Prasangika goes there. But it's like you go Vibhasaka, Satantrika, Chita Madra, and then Prasangi, I mean, they're way out in, in, I don't know where they're at. They have an interesting perspective, and some of it has wiped off on the Prasangikas. Yeah. But some of it is like totally different. Yeah. So according to the, the Chita Mantra, Okay, the predispositions which exist with the immediately preceding condition of that consciousness and which cause it to be generated as having the aspect of blue are the observed object condition for sense direct perceivers and mental direct perceivers. Okay, so the observed object condition is a seed on the foundation consciousness. Okay? which I guess is the immediately preceding condition of what you think or what is the visual consciousness apprehending blue. Okay, the form which is apprehended by that sense direct perceiver or mental direct perceiver is called the appearing object condition but it's not an actual observed object condition because it's one substantial entity with that consciousness and thus exists simultaneously with it. And to be a condition or a cause of something, you have to exist prior to that thing. Okay, so you wanted to know? You got it now, huh? Should we go back to feeling? I feel, I feel. What did you feel hearing all of this? It's interesting, though, you know? I mean, to see how different schools assert cognition and how it happens and what, you know, it brings about the question of what actually are we seeing? And is there something objective out there that we're seeing? Yeah, which everybody says there is you know, except the Prasangika and a little bit the, the uh, Satantrika, Svatantrika. Okay, let's go back to feeling, huh? But now you have seeds planted on your mind for this because one day it will come up in something you're studying and then you'll go, oh, I remember that. Uh, was that an apperception that is helping me remember it or not? <laughs> okay. So um, we only read one paragraph about feeling last time. I'm going to go back and reread that. So we're doing it from the top. So this is the seventh of link. 
So feeling is the polluted mental factor that experiences the object as pleasurable, or we have a happy feeling, painful, yeah, a suffering feeling, or neutral, one is ne- that is neither pleasurable nor unpleasant, through its own capability, by depending on its cause, the link of contact, okay, which came before it. So you have to have contact with an object in order to experience feeling from it. So feeling here does not mean emotion. Rather, it is the pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral experience that comes about just after any of our cognitive faculties contact an object and produce a consciousness cognizing that object. Okay. So it's quite interesting, and I I don't have this figured out, but here contact is the cause of feeling. Yeah, In low rig, every consciousness has a mental factor of contact and a mental factor of feeling. Okay, so clearly the contact that is the cause for one uh, mental factor of feeling has to be the mental factor of feeling in the next moment of mind. It can't cause the feeling that exists at that moment. Okay, so then it brings up the the question of if I'm looking at the pink, yeah, and there's contact with the pink, then in the next moment there's feeling. But in the moment where there was contact, there was also the mental factor of feeling. What was that mental factor of feeling experiencing? What was the object of that? Is that relying also on the pink uh, color? Yeah, so I, I don't know the answer to that. But it's something that I've thought about. I've kind of, I remember asking about it in when we studied low rig, but I don't remember a clear answer. Do you know? Okay. They do say that we need to have uh, more than one perception moment. of the same object for at least several moments. Yeah. To be able to notice it, but then at some point, yeah, the mind will switch to another object. So in that moment, then. Yeah, the previous moment of contact is related to one object, and the next moment, of, I don't know. Yeah, it's, it's yeah. So it's, <laughs> yeah, I, I don't. Okay, so okay, so feeling afflicts transmigrating beings because it experiences the polluted feelings of pleasure and pain. How we go? Why are pleasure and pain polluted? Well, remember, polluted means they exist under, you know, something to do with ignorance and the latencies of ignorance. Okay, so what this is automatically telling us is the feelings of samsaric beings are polluted. So the feelings of arhats and buddhas you know, well, our hearts may still have polluted feelings with the latencies of ignorance, but the feelings of Buddhas are going to be something totally different than what we experience. They're unpolluted. 
So what are unpolluted feelings like? Okay, put that on your list. Yeah. Yeah, as your list is getting kind of long, you know, it's the when I become a Buddha list. <laughs> okay. So while feeling is usually categorized as of three types, uh, pleasure, pain, and neutral. Yeah. It can also be categorized in five types. Physical pleasure, mental happiness, physical pain, mental pain, and neutral. Okay. And here in the explanation of dependent origination, it is of six types. The feeling arising from eye, ear, nose, tongue, tactile, and mental contact. Okay. So it's the same mental factor, but look at all the different ways that you can explore it and look at it. So this is quite interesting to, to do in, in your meditation. Yeah. And what sense is this? What is the feeling I'm experiencing? You know, is it a physical feeling? Is it a mental feeling? Okay. So my leg hurts. You know, you're sitting in pretzel position. Yeah. And your leg hurts. So what kind of feeling is that? Well, okay, it's a painful feeling. Is it physical or mental? Well, it's obvious. It's physical. It's happening in the body. Where in the body? Yeah. Because, see, our, our knowledge of science kind of throws a wrench into this whole thing. If you don't know about what the brain does, well, the, the pain is in the leg. Okay. But if you know about something about how the brain works, well, it's the brain actually. Something's going on in the brain that you feel pain here. So where exactly are you feeling the pain? Yeah, because it, all the impulses go up to your brain. And then from that, it hurts down here. So where actually does it hurt? And what really is the pain? Yeah, what really is pain? Is it, yeah, I mean, it's, it's really interesting to, to sit and watch that. I was talking to, to one friend uh, some time ago, and he was uh, doing the body scan meditation and uh, getting into it. And he was telling me that he had one a pain like on this shoulder that was really intense. So he was really focusing on the pain and, you know, trying to outline. You're, you're not moving, you know, you're in meditation position, but mentally trying to outline exactly where the pain was. Have you ever tried to do that? To draw a line exactly around where the pain was? Can you do that? It seems like you could, but whenever you try and draw that line just mentally, it's like, well, where actually is it? Where is it hurting and where is it not hurting? Okay. Anyway, he told me, so he was doing that, and then he said, at one moment, the pain jumped from this shoulder to this shoulder. 
and this shoulder was hurting, and this shoulder no longer hurt. Yeah. So what's going on there? And how does the mental pain, you know, when we have physical pain, then the mind doesn't like it. The mind has mental pain. How does the mental pain influence the physical pain? Yeah, when you don't like the physical pain, does the physical pain hurt more? (laughs) It seems to, doesn't it? But how does that happen? If it's just physical pain, how come it hurts more because of your mind? You know, if it's some kind of objective thing that's out there, and then how does that change? Okay, so if you do the four foundations or four establishments of mindfulness, this is a really good thing to explore too. Okay, while many other mental factors, such as discrimination and intention, also arise in response to contact, the Buddha singled out feeling because it leads most directly to craving. So someone had asked why are feeling and discrimination their own aggregates? Okay, well, here's one of the answers for feeling, because it really leads to craving. Now we go, why? Why is, why is craving so important? Okay. Well, remember when you take refuge, the refuge formula that you recite, you know, and when it comes, I take refuge in the Dharma, the supreme abandonment of craving. Okay. So the Dharma refuge is the supreme abandonment of craving. That's meaning that craving is pretty important there. And when we talk about the 16 aspects of the four truths, yeah, when we're talking about uh, true cause or true origin, yeah, the example given is craving. So even though ignorance is the root of samsara, The chief example, yeah, is craving. And you can see this in our lives. I mean, craving just takes over our mind and we completely monopolizes us. And there's different kinds of craving. We're going to come to that. Yeah. But, the you know, we just like craving arises in the mind and we're gone. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So the Buddha singled out feeling because it leads most directly to craving. This is evident in our lives. Experiencing pleasure leads to craving for more pleasant feelings, doesn't it? Do you ever have a pleasant feeling and say, that's good enough? (laughs) Yeah. You know, Lama Yeshi's slogan that he so often told us when we became self-critical, good enough, dear, good enough, dear. Does craving let us be, so anything be good enough? No, when we experience something pleasurable, 
It's never good enough. We want more. We want better. Okay, and then our mind is completely directed towards getting more and getting better. Okay, and all of our reason goes out the window. You know, all of our, you know, when, when craving gets really strong, all of our ability to reason is, is vanished into thin air. Yeah? And it's like craving, you know, if you've been to Dharmsala and you see the donkeys that haul the slates around, they have a ring in their nose, you know? And then there's a rope attached to the knee, to the ring. And the, the guy, the donkey, what do you call it? Caretaker? Donkey exploiter? Pulls on the rope. And the donkey goes wherever. Yeah, the, the, it's, uh, it's exploiter takes it. You know, without any choice. So that's like us. You know, when we have craving, it's like, it's like a ring in our nose, and craving says do this, and we, you know, the craving says do that, and craving, yeah. Okay. So this is evident, most evident in our lives. Experiencing pleasure leads to craving for more pleasant feelings. Experiencing pain sparks craving to be separated from such undesirable feelings. So craving isn't just for the good stuff. It's also to be free of the bad stuff. Okay? So when your leg is hurting, yeah, and you have the physical feeling of pain and then the mental feeling of pain, then you have craving to be free of the painful feeling, okay? And it builds up, and it builds up, and it's so intense, and you're saying, I'm not going to move. I'm going to beat this craving. And anyway, I'm going to go and go retreat, and they forbid me to move. And and I'm going to move. I can't stand it anymore. (laughs) Okay? So craving to be free of the unpleasant. Um, okay. And we exper- experiencing neutral feeling prompts craving for it not to diminish. Okay. So this applies specifically to the fourth dhyana where the feeling is equanimity. And that feeling of equanimity is said to be more blissful than the happiness or pleasure that you get from the lower dhyanas. Because the lower dhyanas, when you have rapture, for example, there's a little bit of kind of, you know, sizzling energy in there that can be distracting. But when you have equanimity, it's just, you know, so they say, okay. So when you have that kind of neutral feeling, they then you don't want it to diminish. Yeah. And for us ordinary beings in the desire realm, we, a neutral feeling, well, it, pleasure would be better, but at least it's not pain and we don't want it to turn into pain. 
Okay. So the, the neutral one especially applies to beings in the fourth dhyana and above who have only neutral feeling and do not wish the peace it brings to cease. So ignorance, karma, and causal consciousness, okay, one, two, and three A, project a rebirth that begins with the resultant consciousness, which is three B, and continues as the body develops during the links of Nitman form four and the six sense, uh, six sources five. So the contact six and feeling seven occur. Okay. Feeling is one of the chief ways that karma ripens. Okay. Now it says feeling is one of the chief ways that karma ripens, which means that karma can ripen in other ways besides feeling. Okay. And it, it doesn't mean that all feelings necessarily come from karma or that all karma necessarily ripens as feelings. Okay. But just that the feeling aggregate is one of the predominant ways that that karma ripens. Virtuous actions produce pleasant physical and mental feelings, and non-virtuous actions produce painful physical and mental feelings. On the one hand, feelings are the result of an evolutionary process, beginning with ignorance and karma. So that's when we're looking at 12 links as one life evolving. Okay. On the other hand, Feelings initiate a new chain of events because they instigate craving. Okay, so just as ignorance and then the afflictions in between that don't have a number, <laughs> the, you have ignorance, afflictions, and then two, which is karmic formations, you know, and that's triggering a ch one chain of events. Here, you have feeling producing craving, and then craving produce, makes us act. Yeah, when we're craving something, we don't just sit there and go to sleep. Yeah, we do something to satisfy our craving. So craving, which is also reflected in emotions such as attachment and anger, creates more karma. In this way, samsara perpetuates itself. Okay? So when we have attachment in the mind, craving once more, better of the object that gives the pleasure. When we have anger in the mind, then it's the craving to be free from the unpleasant situation. Okay? Because we do crave that, don't we? In English, craving we usually would associate with wanting something that's pleasurable, but here it also means wanting to be free of the painful and not wanting uh, neutral feelings to diminish. So it's a, a bigger meaning than our usual English meaning. So when we have a strong craving, we act, we create karma. If we observe our experience closely, we will notice how many feelings we experience, one after the other, 
during the day. Yeah, one feeling after the other. I mean, maybe even just sitting here in this talk, there's one feeling after the other. You hear something, an idea that you like, and there's a pleasant mental feeling. And then there's the next sentence, which, you know, is talking about, uh, you hear the thing of, you know, attachment produces uh, pleasant feelings. Oh, yeah, you get a pleasant feeling from that. Then, you know, craving from uh, uh, these feelings produces negative karma. Oh, I don't want to hear that. That's an unpleasant feeling. Or maybe, maybe when your mind is transforming, then when you hear it produces karma, you have a, a pleasant feeling because your mind is changing, you know. And you're wanting to, you're wanting to undo the, the 12 links. Yeah, look at, look at what you have resistance to. It, it kind of tells you where, where you're at regarding the practice. Yeah. Like certain things like, I don't like that word. I don't like that sentence. Yeah. Well, um, look at that. Okay, we will also notice how reactive we are to those feelings. Our craving to have pleasure and to avoid pain is strong, affecting our moods and motivating most of our actions. Okay, so it's 12 noon and you're here. And, you know, it's a day where there's no um, BBC talk. So you know you're going to eat lunch soon. Yeah. And you're feeling the unpleasant sensation of, of hunger. And, and um, you know, well, you're feeling hunger and having the unpleasant physical feeling of hunger. And then your mind says, I don't like feeling hungry. You know, why should I have to feel hungry? It's not fair. And then... You're waiting for the abbess to come so that you can <laughs> offer the food and go eat. And she's late again, as usual. And anger arises. Yeah? So you're angry. Why is she always late? Can't she get her act together? You know. And then you get mad at yourself for being angry at her. Oh, I'm not supposed to be angry at my teacher. Ugh. So I might as well be mad at myself for getting angry at her. <laughs> yeah. And then you feel so guilty for being angry at her, but then you're angry at yourself, so you have another unpleasant feeling. Okay. And you don't like that unpleasant feeling either. And you blame it all on, you know, the fact that you're hungry. You know, if I weren't so hungry, I wouldn't mind waiting for her. Well, I don't know how true that is. <laughs> You'd probably, even when you're not hungry, you want to eat quick. You don't want to wait. Okay. And, and, you know, so reactive. And then, you know, she comes in. It's like, oh, heavy feeling. She's almost here. The food is almost here. Oh, this is getting exciting now. I'm going to be able to eat, and that's going to bring me so much pleasure, you know. And then she kind of takes her time out there. 
you know, putting on a robe and walking in and, you know, and you're just getting madder and madder and madder. Anyway, finally it's all over, you know, and, and, you know, somebody off, you know, we, somebody offers the food. So, well, one person who's offering, who's leading the food, I contemplate <laughs> I contemplate <laughs> you know uh, I, yeah I contemplate something uh, it, <laughs> it takes a really long time so again unpleasant feeling anger arises you know Kind of, why can't you say it faster? You know, okay. And then the net, or you get the other person who, who is. Uh, <laughs> 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 you know, when they chant, it's like zoom. You know, it's like, and you say, I wonder what she would be like if she ever took meth. You know? If this is what she's like without meth, imagine what she would be like with meth. It's like, you know, like I'm still trying to, you know, <laughs> contemplate something, and she's already done with it. Okay. And so, so then, you know, that's another unpleasant feeling. Okay. And it's like, oh, they're going too fast. Why can't they go at the right speed? I can never, you know, they're either too slow or too fast. And like these people and, you know, why I want to lead it. Why don't I lead it? And then it can be at the, at the, um, speed I want it to be. I think that's a good idea. I think you should come and lead it. I'm serious. So line up when it's time to offer the food and you can lead it, or when it's time to do the chanting at the end. We welcome new voices. <laughs> and just know that nobody is going to think anything bad about you. <laughs> Okay, so these feelings, the feelings, they come fast and furious, don't they? Yeah, and then when you finally get in there, well, first you have to wait in line, you know, and then there's the abbess again. <laughs> She's at the front of the line, you know, picking out one noodle. <laughs> you know, and then there's the other teacher, and it's like... I can't eat that. I can't eat that. <laughs> and, you know, and then finally, after some time, you get to the food. Yeah. And most of it is gone. <laughs> yeah. Except what you don't like. Yeah. There's plenty of that remaining, but... What you really like is gone, you know, <laughs> the food, the food gone beyond. 
know, instead of the wisdom gone beyond. Yeah. Okay. So we will notice how many feelings we experience one after the other during the day. We will also notice how reactive we are to those experiences. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Our craving to have pleasure and to avoid pain is strong, affecting our moods and motivating most of our actions. The idea of experiencing pleasure from our morning cup of coffee or tea gets us out of bed in the morning. So you're still dreaming about coffee, (laughs) but tea is the substitute, so you better like it. (laughs) Okay? And that gets, I mean, really, that gets you out of bed, doesn't it? You know, the idea of, no, what gets you out of bed? My tree going like this. I have my tea next to my bed, so I don't don't have to get out of bed. (laughs) Yeah. So for me, it's, it's often my tree, you know. She just sticks her claws out just a little bit. And right here. <laughs> or sometimes it's like right on my eyelid. <laughs> yeah, that gets me out of bed pretty quickly. <laughs> okay. Um, seeking the happiness that comes from having money and possessions, we go to work. Yeah. Craving to be free of pain, we defend ourselves against criticism and lash out at anything that hurts us or even slightly inconveniences us. Yeah. The space between feeling and craving is one of the places where the forward motion of dependent origination can be broken. Okay, this, this part's really interesting. So feelings naturally arise when contact with external objects or internal objects, such as memories, ideas, and plans, occurs. Yeah? You have feelings arising from memories, ideas, and plans? Yeah? I imagine a lot during retreat, Remembering all sorts of things you haven't thought about in a really long time. Planning everything you're going to do after the retreat is over. Yeah. Ideas. Oh, I'm not only going to change the speed of the offering prayers. I'm going to change the melody and make it nicer. Yeah. And then have it sing in different, what do you do it in different, in harmony? Have it sing and, you know, chant in harmony. Good luck, yeah. (laughs) Okay. So being aware of feelings and noting them with introspective awareness, it is possible to prevent craving from arising in response to them. So that's how you cut. This is one weak a place in the 12 links where you can stop the creation of karma is between feeling and craving. Okay. We practice observing feelings without reacting to them. That's hard. Yeah. So first you have to, I mean, really control your mind from 
getting angry or getting really attached when the pleasant or unpleasant feeling, you know, arises. And then you have to control your body so that you're not acting on it. And then after controlling your body and, you know, your your impulses to do something, or sometimes you even want to say something, um, then it's a thing of how do you just experience the feeling without reacting. So this doesn't mean shutting down the feeling. We're not talking about building more walls and making ourselves indifferent to things. You know, this stiff upper lip lip kind of thing. I don't feel anything. That's not what we're talking about. It's you feel the pain or the pleasant pleasure or the neutral feeling, but your mind doesn't take the next step to get a craving. So there's pleasure, but you don't go to, I want more. There's pain, and you don't go to get it away. There's neutral, and you don't say, yeah, let it be. You know, or let it continue as long as it's not pain. You just experience it. You know it's impermanent. It arises, and it ceases. And that's actually not so easy to do. Yeah, because we are quite addicted to these different kinds of craving and addicted to pleasant feelings. Yeah, so we're really like junkies that way. So, uh, you know, breaking our addiction to pleasant feelings is not so easy, but it's really one space where we can create some wiggle room. Yeah. Okay, we practice observing feelings without reacting to them, observing where they come from, where they abide, and where they go. So this is also very interesting. So you're feeling this feeling, where did it come from? Where was it before you felt it? And where is it right now? Or what is it right now? And when it disappears, where did it go? Okay. We study the seemingly instantaneous reactions we have to different feelings and how our craving for unpleasant feelings and craving to be free from... How our our craving... Oh, mistake. This should say for pleasant feelings. Okay, how our craving for pleasant feelings and craving to be free from unpleasant feelings controls our life. Good example of how many people have read this and you don't catch all the boo-boos. Yeah. Only feelings accompanied by ignorance cause craving. When ignorance has been eliminated, Feelings are present, but craving does not arise. Arhats, pure ground bodhisattvas, and Buddhas also experience feelings, but since their feelings are not the result of a process initiated by ignorance, 
They are blissful. Okay. The feelings experienced by an awakened one are inconceivable for us ordinary beings. During the Buddha's lifetime, a great drought and famine afflicted the land. The Sangha received no alms until one man who owned horses gave the monks some horse feeder fodder to eat. So the fodder tasted disgusting to the monks, but the Buddha ate it contentedly. contentedly. One monk, overcome with sadness that the Buddha had to endure such foul food, said, what a desperate situation that the blessed one, blessed one has only this vile fodder to eat. The Buddha lovingly responded, please don't worry. And taking a small part of the fodder from his mouth, gave it to the monk to eat. Chewing it, the monk was astonished to taste what had become delicious divine food, owing to its contact with the Buddha's senses. Okay, so then the reflection. Observe your feelings with mindfulness and introspective awareness and identify pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral feelings. Okay, so it's a good thing to do. You have plenty of time to do it now. Yeah? Second, be aware that they arise after contact with an object. So the object doesn't necessarily mean the external object. So many feelings arise when we think of something. Yeah? So maybe the the object there would be, you know, it could be the idea, the conceptual appearance, you know, how reactive we are to our own thoughts, how they create feelings. Oh, I don't like that thought. Get rid of it. Ooh, I like that one. Yeah, let's concentrate on that one. Okay, so be aware that they rise after contact with an object. And then also, what this tells us is we begin to see what objects we are very reactive towards. And that gives us some knowledge about what objects we should stay clear of. You know, the things that we are so reactive towards that we instantly go into, you know, uh, pleasure or, or pain, and then we act out of that. Then, you know, when we can, at the beginning, stay clear of those objects, not just to ignore them because they're bad. The, those objects are not the problem. They're not bad. But we separate ourselves from them to give us the time to learn, to understand our feelings and to learn how not to let feelings go into craving. Okay? But then there's some situations where you can't separate from the object and you just have to learn right there in the situation not to let your mind go crazy. So this is why, you know, as as monastics, that we have precepts that regulate the kind of contact we have with certain objects. 
Yeah, like not handling money is one of our precepts. Why is that a precept? Yeah, because when you handle money, it's very easy for greed to arise. Yeah, there's a pleasant feeling. Oh, because you start thinking of what you could buy with the money, and then greed arises, you create karma, and then, you know, you're off and running. Okay, so there's many things like that to train the mind. Watch how instantly craving arises for pleasant feelings to continue and for unpleasant feelings to cease. And then four, how do all these feelings, as well as the craving they provoke, affect your life? How do you respond to them? Yeah? So what effect do all these how do you respond to all these different feelings and how does that affect your life? You know, affect your actions, affect how you feel about yourself, affect your relationship with others. You know, we hear some words that we don't like and, you know, instantly craving to be free of, you know, the sound of those words as well as the meaning of the words, and so then we lash out at somebody. Okay. And then five, are there certain objects that it would be helpful for you to avoid temporarily so that you can work on reducing the craving that results from contact with them? Yeah. And so that also is is very good forgetting to know ourselves and how to, uh, yeah, what things that we're going to keep some distance from because, because, you know, and this is especially with media where we have to be careful. Yeah. Especially with movies because movies are designed to evoke a lot of emotions. The news is designed to evoke emotions. Yeah. And so, you know, how much contact am I going to have with these things? Because it, it sets me on having these different feelings and then having these different kinds of craving and creating karma. Okay, so let's pause here. The next section is a bit long. Questions, comments. Yeah. So for the very timely example of, you know, the leg hurting in meditation, I'm trying to understand this idea of, you know, interrupting the, the well, maybe not the 12 links for that example, but um, if I have that unpleasant feeling and go, oh, it hurts, I should move my leg. At that point, the craving has already arisen and I've kind of like lost the battle at that point and I'm just not acting really mm-hmm. right like i need to really be much more mindful of the feelings to even prevent that first first step am i understanding that correctly yeah you know i mean to that's what you originally want to go to to catch that space between the feeling and the craving but that's a little bit difficult to do so start on working at no, identifying the craving when it's small so that you don't increase it and let it, you know, can continue to grow. And then that gives you, you know, slowly, slowly, you can start catching it earlier. Not, I'm having, um, I was thinking about um, not wanting a neutral event 
to not continue. Mm-hmm. It seems that when I'm experiencing something that's neutral, it's like my mind is, or something is, the craving is already looking for something that's pleasant. Yeah. It's not abiding in the neutrality. So I'm, uh, that's why I didn't. Right. That's that. why it says that that one applies particularly for the fourth Diana and above. Yeah. So it could be some, uh, like if you just had surgery and, and you've been having a lot of pain and then for some time you don't have pain, it's just a neutral feeling, then it's like, uh, let's hope it stays like this. Yeah. That would be maybe a, a better example because otherwise neutral feelings, uh, they, they can very easily become unpleasant. Because we're bored and we're, we want something nice and fun and exciting and, you know, something pleasurable to happen. I wonder if, um, you can clarify a little bit about this thing about, um, feeling and karma. Cause it, we're so drenched in, not maybe living it, but that, you know, non-virtuous actions create unpleasant feelings. Virtuous actions bring about the pleasant feelings. What else would bring about a virtuous or a pleasant or unpleasant feeling if it wasn't karma. Yeah. Uh, that I'm not, there may be other causes. I know in the Pali tradition, um, because sometimes what people think is not that the karma brings about the feeling, but it brings about the incident that you're experiencing. Okay. So that, You know, how much does the karma bring about the actual incident and how much does it bring about the experience? So, you know, when there's an earthquake, it's not your karma that makes the earth move. Yeah, that is from natural causation, geological causation. And our karma made it so that we are there when it moved when the earthquake happened, and that we experience whatever feeling. Okay, but getting us to be there when the earthquake happened, that itself isn't a feeling. Yeah, so how much was the karma influencing the mind that said, oh, I have to go there? Yeah, so these are the subtle dimensions of karma. Yeah, so don't ask me. Yeah. (laughs) Huh? Yeah. What else could be causing feeling? Maybe it's just something physical that's happening with your body. And there's no particular karma that's making it ripen. I, I don't, how, you know, I don't know for sure, but I do know that let's not make it this into a concrete kind of thing. Because one time I tried to do that. And the Geshe that I was working with on this said, mm, no. Okay. I can refer you to him. You can ask him. Okay. I just want to make two comments. Um, the first is you mentioned not moving during meditation. And I'm starting to appreciate how, you know, keeping a form and not moving really draws attention to these feelings that arise. Otherwise, you just react. And then you don't notice it and you're yeah. constantly shifting, shifting, shifting. Yeah. But like part of monastic training is like you keep a certain form and you 
keep your body controlled. And I think that really brings awareness to what's going on in the yeah. mind. And it's yeah. quite uncomfortable right. sometimes. But Because you don't just do whatever you feel like, you mm-hmm. know? Yeah. Unless you're me sitting in the front of the room <laughs> doing it. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it's the form that keeps you, that makes you very mindful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Of what am I doing? And, you know... If I don't like what, uh, how the form is, well, why not? Yeah. And then one time I was meditating and it felt cold. And then I was like, oh, awful. You know, I need to cover up. But then I had the thought, so what? And then like the cold ceased to be painful. Yeah. And it was like really shocking to me. how that happened. So I could see like, you know, the difference between, or that link between feeling and craving. And then once the craving subsided, then the feeling itself changed. So kind of like this back and forth relationship, but that usually doesn't happen, sadly. (laughs) No, but it's true. Um, The comment you made right at the beginning about how when we feel confused and wonder what's going on, the answer to that is the 12 links. But um, within the 12 links, it it only talks about the karma that gets us here in the first place, you know, in Mm -hmm. this human life. But it doesn't talk about other karma that ripens once we're here. And I mean, of course, we're creating more karma all the time, Mm -hmm. but... You know, as we go through life, there's all kinds of new karmas ripening and causing different experiences. Mm-hmm. So those aren't mentioned in the 12 links. Not when we're going through it link by link, but later on when they start talking about the difference between propelling karma and completing karma, then the the second link karma is the propelling karma that propels the the rebirth, but but then the completing karma is all that other karma you're talking about that is always ripening as we go through life. Yeah, but that's talked about in in karma, the teachings on karma, but not specifically yeah, but, in the twelve but links. But when we do the twelve links, yeah, in later discussions. Because it doesn't just go through the 12 links one by one. It, it then, yeah, talks about other, all sorts of other ways of drawing them together. So it, it comes in there. And one other kind of related question. My understanding is that it's just one single karma, one single action done in the past that is the cause for us to be born as a human being or as an animal or whatever. Mm. But does that same karma... Um, also, is that is it also the cause for being born to that particular set of parents and having, you know, an attractive body or an ugly body or a healthy body? You know, is all that included in that one karma mm. that throws us into this okay. life? Or are there so, First of, of all, it's not one karma, one rebirth. Yeah. Sometimes there's a lot of karmas that ripen to produce one rebirth. And sometimes it can be one rebirth producing many karmas. So there's four possibilities with that. It comes from uh, Abhidharma, I yeah, think. Yeah, I remember that in Abhidharma. Yeah. And, I'm, and I thought Vasubandhu is the one that says, no, it's just one karma. But I'll have to look. No. <laughs> uh, yes. Well, somebody said it, I think. I thought 
who knows what Vasubandhu said. Um, yeah, <laughs> he may have said that, he may have said it this way, I don't know. But yeah, somebody says it that way. So it could be several karmas ripening. Yeah. And then the second part of your question was details about our life. Oh, like yeah. The kind of body the, we have, the parents we have, this. the place I we're born. Yeah, so. I think the propelling karma is just determining the realm that you're born into. Yeah? It just gets you into that realm. And then all the other conditions, you know, what parents you're born to into, what color hair or fur you you have or uh you know all these kinds of other things um yeah are influenced by different karmas so those are karmas that aren't ripening in feelings yeah now how exactly they influence whether you know your eyes are blue or brown or green oh no Okay, but yeah, karma influences all those other conditions. Like karma can ripen as our environment. So what country we're born into, what environment we have. Yeah, how people treat us. Yeah, karma's involved in all that kind of stuff. And that's not the karma that is the second link. Second link karma is only the karma that produces a rebirth. Yeah. But if you read ahead, it will talk about the other karma, the completing karma too. Yeah, I wonder where the feelings of the Buddhas come from. Do they experience feeling? The Ayas also, so where where does this come from? Is this also karma or... Um, Where do the Buddhist feelings come from? I would say, uh, you know, their their meditative stability, their union of serenity and insight. Yeah. Something like that. Because Buddhists don't create polluted karma. Yeah. So, I don't know. They usually don't talk about Buddhists creating karma at all. But Buddhists have... uh, enlightening activity, but that's talking about the activities they do to benefit sentient beings. So I think once you become a a Buddha, you know, it's just you've eliminated all the causes for anything unpleasant or painful. So, okay.